decrease, a different kind of hunger, a different kind of fast. Good morning. Trust that you are all as awake or maybe as asleep uh, as I feel this morning after the time change. But uh, the time change is exciting because now from here on out, every day gets a little bit longer. Even though it's freezing out there today, it's going to be light until like 7.15 tonight. And uh, summer is just around the corner, even though it doesn't feel like it now with the snowpocalypse upon us this week. But as Pastor Sean said earlier, we are in uh, the second week of our Decrease series Uh, where we're talking about things like preparing for Easter. We're using terms like uh, Lent and decrease and fasting. And out of curiosity, I would love to know how many of you grew up recognizing or celebrating Lent. Would you raise your hand if you grew up? Okay, so like maybe like 40% of us in the room. You know, for me, despite uh, growing up in church, the whole Lent concept was actually pretty new to me in the last few years. The church that I grew up in didn't really celebrate Lent. One of the main uh, tenets of Lent uh, is that during Lent, many people fast something. And this also was uh, a pretty unfamiliar concept to me. I had always thought about fasting as strictly not eating food for a day or two, and that did not sound any level of enjoyable to me. I enjoy my food. I mean, that sounded to me more like something that you would do like when you're getting ready for a medical test the next day where you have to be put to sleep. That's when I would fast, not something that I would choose to do. You know, I had heard of people fasting chocolate or ice cream or wine or red meat, right? But, but I always wondered, like, why fast? What is the purpose of this larger tradition called Lent anyways? And then this week I got thinking, like, what if you were somebody that regularly fasted? Like, if you fasted all the time and then you decided to fast fasting for Lent, like, would that still be a fast even if you were trying not to fast? And I got myself really confused when I thought about that for a little while. But this year, seriously, we're trying to take all of the misunderstanding around Lent and really dig into what Lent is all about. If you were able to purchase the uh, 40 Days of Decrease book last week, I think we actually sold out. There are more out there this week. Uh, But as you're reading it, you're learning that fasting can look a lot different than maybe you thought it could when you were growing up. If you missed last week when we kicked off the series, we're excited that you're here with us today. And uh, we look forward to enjoying, I think now, only like the next five weeks until Easter, preparing for Easter as we understand Lent as a time of decrease, a time to decrease distractions, a time to decrease things in our life that block us from a relationship with God. One of the clearest challenges uh, to this aim in Scripture uh, was spoken by a pretty famous guy named John the Baptist, and John was actually Jesus' cousin. John was actually a miracle baby born to older parents who had struggled with infertility, and he was one of the men on earth that Jesus most respected. Now, John was a rugged guy. He walked around in clothes made of camel hair, and he lived on locusts and honey. How about that for a a, a delicious diet? And he he went around teaching, he went around preaching the coming of the Messiah, and that's where his challenge to us comes in. It was right at the height of his career. At Locust Eater John, which is my pretend Twitter handle for John, he was building up quite the following. Everybody knew his name. Everybody was intrigued by him. People kind of were curious. They wanted to witness his quirkiness and hear what he had to say. The religious authorities of the day weren't quite sure what to make of him. Uh, But they were threatened by how much people were drawn to him. And John, at the pinnacle of his fame, the pinnacle of his popularity, 
when he was asked about Jesus, he makes a statement that surprises and startles his followers when he says this in John 3.30. He says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I know that Jesus was John's cousin and all, and so there's probably like a little bit of that family love thing going on there, but, but who puts themselves down to lift others up? I mean, who, especially at the top of their game, at the height of their popularity, essentially says, hey, everybody pay less attention to me. I must decrease. I need to be less well-known and less successful. If you're an NFL fan, this week was uh, the week when free agency started off. And so, you know, everybody whose contract is over is out there, like, working with their agents, trying to make the most money they can, trying to be, you know, the most relevant on a team that they can. You don't hear anybody going around and saying, hey, guys, I know I played really well last season, but you can lower my salary. I just want to be part of the team. I don't need to be a star. I don't need to be featured, right? Like, that just doesn't happen. And so back in those days, 2,000 years ago, and in today's culture, making a statement like John made was extremely countercultural. And yet this statement might be one of the most famous statements that John ever made. It's a statement also that forms an integral part of our own Lenten journeys, to choose less, to choose decrease. See, John understood something that most of us have a difficult time believing, and it's something that, that fasting is also help, uh, meant to help us experience for ourselves. It's that choosing decrease is what gives room for Jesus to increase. It's the secret to becoming hungry for more of God in my life. The secret to becoming hungry for more of God in my life is to feed my soul less of everything else. And John understood this, and so John chooses to be second. He chooses to be less famous, less powerful, less popular. And so the question that we're left wondering is like, for John, what could be so rewarding that he would be motivated to lower himself, to make himself second? I mean, why would we want to be second in anything? Don't we grow up with our parents telling us, you know, Second place is the first loser, right? <laughs> Aren't we told to always strive to be our best? You know, when our culture pushes us to, to be in first place, the kingdom of God actually teaches us that we will be more fulfilled if we get out of first place. Why is that? It's because by putting yourself second, point one, you put Jesus first. By putting yourself second, you put Jesus first. And so listen, you know, as a part of this season for Lent, uh, Pastor Rick and I, who's preaching at Gettysburg Pike this weekend, decided to fast blanks. So there's no blanks for you to fill in today. But for those of you who feel the need right now to write something, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put an exclamation point after that phrase, you put Jesus first. Why? It's because it, it's four simple words to say, right? But it's incredibly difficult to actually live out. It's four simple words to say, but they have an infinite amount of importance and potential in our lives. See, putting Jesus first is how we were designed to live. We were designed to be able to engage in an intimate relationship with God where he leads and where we follow. We were designed, to, as scripture says, to, to take his yoke upon us. As scripture says, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Instead, we have this unfortunate tendency to try to shoulder the load ourselves. Let's think about it this way. Have you ever carried something heavy for way too long? Two summers ago, uh, my family, uh, we went to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. over Memorial Weekend, which seemed like a great idea 
Uh, but I would advise against it. It was a madhouse. There were people everywhere. Uh, I remember even at lunchtime, like we waited an hour in line to buy food that really wasn't even that good. But that's besides the point. So anyways, after getting through way too little of the zoo for my liking in about five or six hours, we knew it was about time to call it a day because my son Weston, who was four uh, at the time, he had missed his nap. You could tell he was exhausted. He was doing that thing where he kind of just came up and like kept tapping me on the leg. Daddy, I'm tired. Carry me, right? And you're like, we're on the total opposite end of the zoo. I really don't want to carry you. But he kept bugging me, and so I started carrying him as we made our way from the opposite end of the zoo back to the entrance. Now, if you're familiar with that zoo, you walk in, and pretty much the whole thing goes downhill. So guess what happens when you have to walk out of the zoo? It's all uphill, right? Well, so pretty quickly, Weston fell asleep in my arms. And you know when your kids fall asleep, they just become like dead weight in your arms, right? It feels like they weigh 20 pounds more when they fall asleep. Well, so a few different times on the walk back, my dad had offered to take over for me, but, but I couldn't let him do that, right? I mean, I was strong enough to handle it on my own. I could shoulder the load. Why would I allow my dad to help when I could manage it on my own? And so after about 20 to 30 minutes of carrying him from the opposite end of the zoo, my back was killing me. My arms and my hands had fallen asleep. I was drenched with sweat from where my son was, uh, you know, draped against me. And so we stopped at the uh, exit of the zoo for the female members of my family to use the bathroom, as you might be able to guess. Uh, but then finally, as we exited the zoo, as we started that five to ten minute walk back towards the metro, I finally let my dad take over. The feeling started returning to my hands and my arms, and I started to dry off. But I think this is a perfect picture for what so many of us do all through life. I mean, how many of us have walked around for 20 or 30 years or more, carrying a heavy load in our lives? And we've done it because we felt like it's our job or our duty. But because of it, we're worn out. We're exhausted. And all the while, our Heavenly Father is there, and He's constantly offering to help. He's constantly offering to take over for us, to take this burden off of our shoulders so we can be free. So what does this burden look like for us? What are the kinds of things that we have been trying to carry for far too long? Well, in John the Baptist's day, some of the burdens that God's people were carrying were related to legalism. See, theirs was a culture where the mystery and the transcendence of God had been reduced to mere rules and rituals that could be followed so that you could be viewed by someone else as a moral person. Maybe you can relate to that. This is a burden that I know uh, I have carried at times, that, that somehow I, I've made being a Christian, I've made my job as a Christian to follow all the rules, to check all the boxes, to not mess up. And so instead of bringing my whole self to God, instead of bringing my mess to Him, instead of surrendering my burdens to Him, I carry this burden instead of trying to maintain appearances with God as if that's really even possible. Like me, many in that day did their best to do everything that they could to be right, to look righteous. But doing that without engaging with the heart of God is exhausting. And so to the people of that day and to us, John says, decrease, make yourself less, give up that burden of trying to look and trying to be perfect. He says, put yourself second. What else do we carry for far too long? How about our ego, pride? Right? John's followers actually give us an example of what this looks like right before John's increase-decrease statement. In John 3, verses 25 and 26, it says this, 
It says a debate broke out, broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. And so John's disciples came to John from the other end. They, you know, they were going to talk about this thing, but instead they said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one that you identified as the Messiah, he's also baptizing people, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. You can almost hear like that tone in their voice like when your kids come and say, my brother got more snack than I did, right? It just sounds like they're whining. Well, why are they whining? Well, suddenly John's followers are realizing they're not the prettiest girl in town anymore, right? And they didn't like how that felt. John's disciples may have thought that, hey, we're, we're riding this train to the top. This John guy, he's popular. We're going to hang with him. You know, a few days earlier, there was no baptism competition in the waters, <laughs> But now, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus shows up. And to John's followers, Jesus is stealing all of John's work. He's stealing all of John's glory. I think if we're honest, we can all relate a little bit to John's followers. There's something special about feeling like we are number one. That rush of accomplishment, that perception of power, popularity, of good reputation, I mean, who doesn't want to be recognized as the best at something, right? Like, we love to be recognized as the industry leader, as the one who everyone else is looking up to. But maintaining all of that, it's not the easiest thing to do, is it? Once you have it, it takes a lot of work to keep up that number one reputation. The pressures involved in that are tough and all-consuming. It's easy to become isolated, to become overly driven or focused, even anxious, and in many of these scenarios, even when we experience success, we're so worked up we can't even enjoy it. And so as we keep walking down that road, focusing more and more on building ourselves up, it consumes more and more of us. Our ego takes over. Early in my years at Daybreak, I still remember a, a teaching about ego, and I don't remember if it was in a message or in a class, but we were challenged by two acronyms when it came to the word ego. One meaning, one acronym of ego was edging God out. Edging God out. When we're so wrapped up in building our own kingdoms and propping ourselves up, we edge God out. We leave no room for God. We're like Scrooge sitting at his money table, wrapping his arms around all of his coins so that no one else, including God, can access any part of our lives. So to his disciples and to us, John encourages us to decrease, to put our pride and our egos second so that Jesus can increase, so that Jesus can become first, so that we can live out the other acronym for ego, which is exalting God only. Exalting God only. You know, this whole message from John was a countercultural message. It was a message that is meant to challenge us and to challenge John's followers and to challenge the people of that day to repent. In fact, that's how John prefaces Jesus's arrival. As Jesus was coming onto the scene, as the world was getting to know him, John chooses to introduce Jesus by saying, he must increase and I must decrease. He ushers in Jesus' ministry by encouraging people to repent, to make things right with God, to rid themselves of things that block intimacy with God. Now, John could have chosen to say many different things to usher in Jesus' ministry. He could have said, hey, you guys are looking for a political ruler, but it's a servant that's coming, so get prepared for a servant. He could have said, hey, 
Gather all of the sick in your family. Prepare for them to be healed because a healer is coming. He could have said, hey, study God's word and pray. Get yourself ready. A teacher is about to arrive. And all of these things he could have chosen to say about Jesus would have been true. But instead, John's main message is repent, be baptized, give God that load that you have been trying to carry because the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, is coming. Jesus' followers were kind of missing it, and we have a tendency to sometimes miss it too. Here's what I mean by that. When hearing that word Messiah, here's what that would have meant to a Jewish person. And John's followers weren't even thinking about this. See, if Jesus was the Messiah, it would have meant that Jesus was their long-awaited king and that his kingdom had finally come. They were waiting hundreds of years for the arrival of the Messiah. It would have meant that Jesus was their savior. It would have meant that Jesus was their liberator from the oppression that they were under. They had been oppressed for centuries on end. John was saying, don't miss this. Don't be caught unprepared because the Messiah has arrived and he's come to bring you freedom. He's come to bring you release. He's come to bring you liberation, but you have got to be ready to accept him by releasing that burden you've been choosing to carry, by releasing that unhealthy pattern of living that you have been clinging to as life and as hope. You have got to be ready to decrease so that he can increase in your life. And so the question for you and for me is what is that heavy burden that you have been carrying for way too long? When you hear John's repent, when you hear John say, choose to be second, when you hear John say, empty your life of the things that have prevented God from becoming first, what does that look like for you? What is that unhealthy pattern in your life? In what way have you tried to say, hey, I got this, I can handle everything by myself? Is it legalism and perfection? Is it striving for success and the building of your ego above Jesus? Is it something maybe like people-pleasing, like putting lots of time and energy into being accepted and saying yes to everyone at the expense of yourself and your relationship with God? Maybe it's control. Maybe it's using people and manipulating circumstances to get your way, to be comfortable. Whatever it is, it's not how God designed for us to live. It's not a yoke that God designed to fit on our shoulders. It's not a load that God designed for us to carry. He didn't design us to live without his power or to try to achieve things like significance or belonging or acceptance on our own. He wants to carry our weight for us. He wants to meet those needs. He wants to fill our soul with joy and peace as we rely on him instead of on those unhealthy patterns we've set up in our lives, instead of those things that we have put our hope in that have returned false. Putting yourself second so that Jesus can be first is one of the greatest gifts that you can ever give yourself. You know, if you listen to Christian radio much, you've probably heard a song or two by a guy named Colton Dixon. Colton is best known for being one of the top 12 finalists on season 11 of American Idol, and that year he finished in seventh place, which was uh, actually pretty surprising to most of America, as a lot of people uh, thought that he had a good shot to win it all. And on his second album called Messenger, Colton wrote a song called More of You, which was partly based on his American Idol experience. 
speaking about this song, Colton said this. He said, I tried out for American Idol a couple of different times. And the name of that show is really ironic relative to John 3.30, which is the theme verse for this song. See, I was not spiritually ready at all the first few times I tried out. Pride started to creep in, and it really turned into the opposite of John 3.30. It became all about me, all about how I could get somewhere and what I could accomplish. And so this song speaks to the constant struggle we have of putting other things like pride before God. Colton went on to say that when he was growing up, uh, his youth group leader shared an analogy uh, with two cups of water. And he said, one of these cups is you, and one of these cups is God. He said, the water in your cup represents anything that you are putting before God. Those things that you have chosen to fill your life with that are returning back false. And he said, the water in God's cup simply represents him. It represents his presence. It represents what he wants for you. And he said, God wants to fill you up with him. Colton said, I've come to realize that if we as believers want to truly experience the full potential of God's power in our lives, then we first have to empty our cups so that we can make room for what God has for us. We're going to play the song, More of You Now, and the lyrics are there in your outline. You can feel free to follow along if you want to underline or circle certain phrases that really speak out to you as as you have that desire to decrease as well so he can increase, uh, you can do that. So let's check out the song, More of You, by Colton Dixon. Castle tower, I built up every wall. This isn't my kingdom, and it needs to fall. I want you and no one else. Empty me of myself until the only thing that's left is more of you. I need more of you. 
my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to you, I surrender all to you, my blessed Savior, I surrender As the song said, our desire is that you would empty us of ourselves. We choose decrease. We choose less of ourselves and more of you. We want to give you our burdens. We want to give you our struggles. We want to give you our failed attempts to create peace and joy and freedom for ourselves. God, be our Savior. Be our King. Be the leader of our lives. We surrender all to you, and we love you. Thank you for loving us, even in our mess. Amen. So by choosing to put ourselves second, we put Jesus first. And as I said earlier, that's one of the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves. But choosing to put ourselves second goes much further than just benefiting ourselves. By putting yourself second, number two, you also point the way for others. You point the way for others. You point the way to Jesus. And if you need something to write, just underline that whole phrase this morning. All right, so let's go back to our friend, John the Baptist. You know, So remember, John here is on the cusp of greatness. He's on the eve of even more fame. And he makes this decision to point away from himself and instead to point to Jesus, to lessen the scope of his ministry and broaden the scope of Jesus' ministry. Why would he do this? You know, I think it's because John valued significance over personal success. He was able to redefine success as significance. And here's what I mean by that. He was able to embrace God's success, God's mission over building his own success. God's mission was so inspiring to him that he was willing to trade in everything to be a part of it. You know, here at Daybreak, as we serve as we use the spiritual gifts and the passion and the personal styles that God has given us, we define success as being faithful, as being fruitful, as being fulfilled, all while making God famous. And John's actions here illustrate a similar understanding of success. Here's how it comes out in Scripture. In verse 27, chapter 3, John says, uh, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. John acknowledges that any measure of success that he has had 
is not his, but it's God's anyway. It's been given by God. John continues, verse 28. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Such a cool way to look at it that John has here. So first of all, John basically says to his disciples, guys, listen, this whole thing, everything that we've been doing, this isn't to build up the kingdom of John. <laughs> like, this isn't for us. I'm not a big deal. I'm not the Messiah, but I know who is. And my job is not to seek my own success, but to seek his success. In this play, I am not the lead actor, but I get to be part of the supporting cast. In this wedding, I am not the groom, but I am honored to be able to stand with him, to be one of the groomsmen. John essentially said, when the mission of God is forwarded, when my work points to Jesus, then I will be filled with joy. That is how I will measure success. See, John continued to teach. John continued to baptize, baptize people. His what didn't change, but his why did. Everything John did now was done to point the way to a specific person, to point the way to Jesus, the Messiah, the one who had come uh, to, as we sang, to arrest death, to crush the power of sin's control, to set people free, to love God in a new way, and to empower them to truly love others. And so John chooses to be second. He makes a choice to point away from himself and his ministry and to the person and the ministry of Jesus. Some of you might be familiar with I Am Second, and I Am Second uh, is a movement meant to inspire all kinds of people to live for God and to live for others. It's a collection of stories uh, of people who have tried to, to carry those burdens like we talked about, but who have failed. People who have put themselves first only to realize that they ended up missing that hope and the peace and the fulfillment that they so desperately craved. And I want to share one of the I Am Second stories with you because I love how well it fits in to what we're talking about here. Uh, you may or may not have heard of David Murphy, who was a baseball player uh, who just retired at the beginning of last season. As an amateur player, he tore it up. He experienced immense success. In high school, he, he won a state title. Uh, he won all state honors. He was honorable mention uh, as an All-American. His senior year, he batted 500 with 12 home runs and 46 RBIs. So basically, that meant every other time he was up to bat, he got a hit. Every other game, at least, he hit a home run. And every game, he's knocking in at least two runs. So he was a starter his freshman year in college, another thing that doesn't happen too often. And he played so well that he finished his college career as a junior so that he could move on to a professional career. Now that career, his professional career, started a little bit slow. Most ballplayers' professional careers do. But it progressed over the course of a few years. And as part of the Texas Rangers, David went to back-to-back -to -back World Series in 2010 and 2011. And despite all of that, despite all of that success, David shares his story of measuring success differently, of what it means for him to put himself second and to put God first. So let's check out this video together. I want to win, and I want to succeed. I mean, I'm passionate about the game of baseball, and when you're passionate about something, 
you desire to be successful. I've lived baseball from pretty much the day I was born. I've loved it since I was two or three years old. It would be great if everybody knew me as David Murphy, the all-star, or David Murphy, the World Series champion. I would love to be all those things and everything that comes with it, but to set my priorities straight, um, I would love to be looked at as David Murphy, the man of God. I pray during the national anthem before each game, and one of the things that I pray is that I'm playing for his glory. You know, baseball is a difficult game, and it can drive you crazy, and uh, it can create a lot of worry. But in the end, there is confidence in him, or there's fear. And I pick the confidence in him. You don't have to worry about going 0 for 4, or having a terrible game, or being in slump because um, that's not the big picture. That's not the most important thing. God blessed me with this talent for a reason, and the game of baseball should be my ministry. Why not use every opportunity you can to spread the word? A lot of people come to Jesus because they're at a crossroads in their life or um, something devastating happens. And that wasn't the case for me. I just, uh, I knew that I had a hole in my heart and uh, I figured out that the only thing that could fill that void was Jesus. At first I thought my testimony was, um, was my story about how I was saved. And that night, and praying the prayer. And uh, the more I grow in Christ, I realize that my testimony is my life. My name is David Murphy, and I am second. love when David shared there how God reframed for him what the most important thing was. Not to be a World Series champion, not to be an all-star, not to rack up stats for our fantasy teams, but to use his gifting, to use his life to point to Jesus. I love what he boiled it down to. He said, my testimony, the way that I point to Jesus is my life, the way that I live. Upon retirement, um, several of David's teammates were interviewed and and they lamented the fact of missing David's person more than missing David, the baseball player. Of missing his friendship, of missing his care for them, of missing the influence that he had in their lives. You may or may not have ever heard of David Murphy. His baseball career may or may not have made an impact on you. But you can be sure of the impact that David Murphy had on the players and on the managers and on the umpires and on the fans that he rubbed shoulders with on a daily basis. And like David Murphy did as a baseball player, we can use our callings 
our stations in life, the gifts that God has given us, the influence that we have with the people in our spheres to point to Jesus. Listen, we all long for significance, don't we? We all long to make an impact. But here's John's counterintuitive truth. He says, if you want to experience true significance, then don't center your life around yourself. Don't center your life around trying to make yourself famous. You won't experience it. He says, center your life around making God famous. Put yourself second so that your life can point to Jesus first and you'll experience more fulfillment than you ever thought you could. Yes, this Lenten season is about us experiencing God's presence in a new way. It's about offloading things in our lives that prevent God from filling us with himself, but it's not just for our benefit. See, the transitional value that we embrace to take our Christianity to the next level is not just to make changes in our lives so that we can enjoy God ourselves, but to make changes in our lives so that we can be filled by God and then pour God out onto others. Imagine that analogy that Colton Dixon gave, but add a third cup, right? I mean, first we must empty ourselves, right? That's the goal of this series, the goal of digging into Lent, the goal of fasting to empty ourselves. We must decrease. And when we do, we make room in our cup for God to fill us up. But the question is, why are we filled? God's word says we're filled to be poured out into a third cup, right? To be poured out into the cup of someone who God also loves desperately, who has not yet experienced his love in a tangible way. So first we empty ourselves to be filled, but then we empty ourselves to fill others. The quote at the end of your outline comes from this 40 Days of Decrease book, and I like the way that it summarizes John's reasons for decreasing. It says, John decreased so others could see the lamb. He wanted to get out of the way. John decreased so others could follow the one who preceded and surpassed him. John was racking up lots of followers. A lot of people were curious in what he was doing. And John said, no, don't follow me. Follow him. John decreased so that the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, would be revealed in his lifetime. May our decrease, likewise, increase our generation's view of Jesus. As we empty ourselves, as we are filled by God, may the way that we live point to Jesus. May it impact what other people think of Jesus by the way that we love them. We must decrease and Christ must increase. Why? So that others may discover a life-changing and eternity-changing journey with Jesus. I want to ask you now to reach into your program guide and to pull out this response card. And in a minute, uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond. And there's two ways today that I want you to think about responding. And the first is this. If you truly desire this morning to put Jesus first and to put yourself second, that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> and so I'd love for you to consider writing that down on your card today, to let this card be a moment in time where you declare to God, you first and me second. You increase so that I can decrease. By writing it on this card, you get our whole prayer team praying for you as you try to figure out how to live that out in your day-to-day -day life. And the second way I'd love for you to consider to respond this morning is to think about the first name of a person whose life 
you would love to be a part of impacting? Who is it that if you were filled with Jesus, you would love to pour Jesus out onto? Who would you love to point the way to Jesus? After I pray during this next song, you can fill out your card. And if God gives you the first name of a friend or family member, you can certainly write that on your card. But if you notice in the back of the room, kind of up against that wall today, we have a prayer wall up for this series. And I would love for you to also consider walking back there during the song and writing that person's name on our prayer wall. Maybe you even want to just include a short prayer for them when you write their name up there. Throughout the rest of the series, we're going to keep returning to the prayer wall. Uh, You, as you exit today or as you enter later in the series, you may just want to stop in front of the prayer wall and just take a minute and pray for those friends, those family members that God has laid on our heart who we so desperately desire to be able to discover a life-changing journey with Jesus the way that we have. So that's what we're going to do. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take a minute to respond. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we love you. And out of our love for you, we submit to you. We choose to put ourselves second. Like John the Baptist, in fact, we take joy in being second to you. God, as we choose to decrease more and more throughout this series, we ask that you would fill us, that you would meet us in fresh ways, that you would do new work in us, that you would make your presence and your love more real to us. So overwhelm us with your presence, and as you do, help us to overflow on to other people. Use us for your mission. God, you long that none would perish, but that all would be able to experience eternal life with you through a relationship with Jesus Christ, your son. So use us to help others discover that life-changing journey with you. Thank you for the privilege of getting to be your groomsmen, of getting to celebrate your success, getting to be used for your glory. Lead us now as we surrender to you in this moment and as we identify people who desperately need you, who we love. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So go ahead now, fill out your cards. Uh, You can write your names on there, your prayer requests on there. You can go back to the prayer wall and write a name and a prayer request on the prayer wall as the worship team leads us in the next hymn.